appreciate it. Exodus 6. If you have a Bible, uh, you could turn to Exodus 6, which I know you don't, so we're going to have it on the screen. Exodus 6. You know, they still make these things, you know, uh, the books, you know, and they have words on pages and... I know everybody's got it on their iPhone today. I'm always nervous a little bit with the iPhone Bible. I feel like somebody might be hacking it and then changing verses, you know, <laughs> like you'll log in, but you're not always sure if this is really what it says. So I have all my digital resources, but, but I like to have a, a physical one as well. I'm going to share uh, just a few moments uh, this morning on a conversation that Moses <clears throat> has with God. Uh, and in doing so, it becomes a, a, a transformational moment in the narrative for both Moses and, and the Hebrew children. Can I tell you, history-shaping moments are born out of conversation with God. History-shaping moments are born out of conversation with God. I think sometimes we have maybe over-spiritualized communication with God. That always has to look in a certain way and feel a certain way. And, and we always have to respond in a certain way. Yet scripture says commune, commune with God or pray without ceasing. And so it tells me that there's a place that we can get in our faith where even if my eyes aren't closed and even if I'm not reciting a portion of scripture, I can still be in commune with the Father. And God talked with Moses the way that a man talks with his friend. It was something that wasn't available in the Old Testament because of the Old Covenant. Yet in the New Testament, Jesus tells his disciples, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends because friends know the master's business. So Moses is a picture of a New Testament reality, even though his story is in the pages of Old Testament books. Moses is a picture of what is to come, the age of grace, the age of friendship with God, the age of unfiltered and unfettered communication between man and his creator. And in Exodus 6, God has a conversation with Moses. And Moses responds, and I believe it reveals a, a few principles in your life and, and in my life that, that we may need for the days ahead. The Bible says this, starting in verse 2, also God said to Moses, I am the Lord. That Hebrew word there is Yahweh, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, your forefather, Isaac, his offspring, and Jacob, his offspring, as God Almighty. The word used there is El Shaddai. But my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, watch, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. I want you to see something this morning that maybe in a casual reading of scripture you would skip. God says to Moses, the people have known me as El Shaddai, but in this next season, they will know me as Yahweh. For I am the personal God who performs his word and never forgets his people. You know, one of the things that's cool about the Old Testament and about the Hebrew language just in general is that it captures different names of who God is. And these different names reveal different parts of his character, like a multifaceted diamond reflecting off of the light. This is who our God is. I know for you and me, we might not know God as healer until we're sick. 
We might not know God is provider until we're broke. We might not know God is the lifter of our heavy heads and, until we enter into a season of, of darkness, the dark shadow of the night, the, 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 the valley of, of, of the shadow of death. We don't appreciate the totality or the fullness of who God is until our life is flavored by different seasons and God responds as faithful as ever in every one of those seasons. God is telling Moses in Exodus 6, I have shown the people El Shaddai and now I will show them Yahweh. See, El Shaddai means this, the one who responds with power. But yet what does Yahweh mean? It means this, God saying, I never had a beginning. I won't ever have an end. I am self-existent. I am eternal. I am unchanging. I am the absolute reality. I am constant. I am the source of all truth. And I am the originator of all life. In fact, the first time that God speaks to Moses in this demonstrative fashion at the burning bush, Moses asks God, who are you? And God responds, I am who I am. He's saying this, I don't need any introduction because I am not like your other gods. I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. And watch what God is telling Moses. The Israelites have known me for my power, and now they will know me as a person. They have known my hand, and now they will know my heart. They have heard me make promises, and yet now they will see that I am more than faithful to fulfill them. Friend, remember what scripture says. It is the kindness of God that leads men unto repentance. God is telling Moses this, I have shown the Hebrew children my ability to perform miracle after miracle after miracle. They have known me as the one with power. And yet in this next season, they will know me as a person. If it's the kindness of God that leads men to repentance, that means that every time that God has intervened in your life story up until now is to bring you to the point where you know him, not for what his hand provides, but for who he is in his heart. How many times has God interrupted your narrative with favor and kindness? Saved you when you didn't deserve it, healed you when you didn't earn it, gave you grace and mercy time and time again, was faithful when you were faithless. All of those demonstrations of God's power in your personal story were meant to introduce you to him as a person, to him as a father. Remember, in all of scripture, the first way that God is ever introduced to all of humanity is not as a judge, not as an authoritarian, not as one who can even do wonders or miracles. Miracles, but he reveals himself as a father. And God, dialoguing with Moses, says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew me as El Shaddai, but you and your people will know me as Yahweh. And then he tells them that I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yet they did not know me fully. And yet I established my covenant with them in the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. And what they believed for, I will give as an inheritance to you. Friend, watch this. Some promises that you receive from God are for now. Other promises that you receive from God are for later. But my responsibility stays the same. We keep pointing people to the Father. I want you to understand God th this morning, not in the context of linear time, 
for he has no beginning and he has no end. Which means this, God exists outside of the time and space continuum. Imagine time and space as servants that bow in the presence of the Almighty. And sometimes we receive a promise from the Lord and we're believing for it in our life. We're getting to the later portion of our life and we begin to get a little nervous. Like, will I actually see the fulfillment of what I've believed for? Can I tell you that scripture speaks of heaven in a much more illustrative fashion than you and I could ever imagine? Scripture says in heaven right now, there is a cloud of witnesses who is cheering us on the journey of faith. And here's the good news. If you believe God for a promise your entire life and you die not receiving it, when you enter into heaven, you get the best seat in the house to see it fulfilled in the generations. And that's why we stay faithful to God, even in the midst of not receiving everything that has been promised. And that's that's why Hebrew 11 paints the heroes of the faith in the way in which it does. They were heroes, not because they saw the end, but because they died in faith and got the best seat in the house to see the Hebrew children walk in the inheritance that God promised to their forefathers. See, that's why when I preach, I sense the responsibility of historicity. I sense the responsibility of orthodoxy. I sense the responsibility of legacy. I sense the responsibility of generational heritage because I know that what we're doing here is exciting a group of people up there who for generations believed and prayed for a move of God in the Northwest that they never saw. Do you know that when the church gathers, scripture even says that the angels peer in with interest because even we carry something that they don't. So it's not just about us. It's a received faith. It's an inherited faith. That means what we believe about who God is or what he says isn't up for popular vote. It doesn't change based on the political pressures or winds of culture. It's not up one day if everybody agrees and down the next if somebody says it's politically incorrect. That's why it's so important that we are anchored in a reality that is higher than the emotion of the moment. This is a historic faith. It's been passed down from generation to generation. And as we receive it, we have a responsibility to steward it and pray that our kids run farther than us. And when I leave this earth and I join the chorus of heaven, I'll surround a lot of other faithful people who went before me. And I'll be the greatest cheering squad that there's ever been. Because even what I don't receive here doesn't mean I won't receive it. It just means that I worship a God who exists outside of the way that I think about promises. See, that's why scripture says, do not consider him slack concerning his promises. For all the promises of the Lord are yes and amen. Well, how can that be true? I know somebody who died believing for healing and they never got it. Yeah, but they're healed there. No more pain, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more tears. For us, we look at a promise fulfilled like a microwave. If I put my request in and it doesn't pop out 60 seconds later, all done, then I can't believe in this type of God. 
But what if time and space and all the laws that govern the universe are simply but humble servants in the presence of the king? And what if a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day? And what if, what if the membrane between heaven and earth is a lot more thin than we actually think? And what if today the fulfillment of what we are heading into is bringing joy to the generations who have believed for a move of God in this city? See, it's not just about us. You ever get in those moments where you're in the presence of God and even though you're all alone, you feel like there's an entire army behind you. Man, I feel that way in this place. What I recognize is that we're carrying a generational inheritance, a generational legacy, things that belong to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that now we have a responsibility to steward. In John 3, there's a man named John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus who is the prophetic forerunner to the ministry of Christ. He's baptizing people in the wilderness, has quite a following. And John the Baptist, in the wilderness, baptizing folks, one day baptizes Jesus to fulfill prophecy. At the age of 30, Jesus begins his three-and-a-half-year public ministry, dies at about 33-and-a-half, raised again on the third day, ascended into heaven some days later. But John the Baptist had a master following, and in John 3, John's disciples come to him and say, aren't you offended that Jesus is now baptizing more people than you? And I love John's response in this moment. He says, I am but a friend of the bridegroom, and the bride doesn't belong to me, it belongs to the bridegroom. And my joy is fulfilled, watch, in hearing his voice. Can I challenge you for a moment this morning? What if our joy was fulfilled in not seeing the promise come to pass, but instead being so close to the Father that we can hear his whisper? See, John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod a few chapters later. He never got to see the Lamb of God who would be slain to take away the sin of the world come into the fullness of what John the Baptist was believing for. And yet in John 3, he says, if I die tomorrow, it's going to be okay because I've already been a fulfilled and a complete and a whole person because my joy is not attached to the outcome. It's attached to the process. And I have heard the voice of the bridegroom. And what if today the promise that you receive from the Lord is not for you to see, but for your children's children to see? Could your joy be fulfilled, not attached to a performative outcome, but instead to a relational voice that speaks to you every step of the journey? Is it too heavy this morning? You hear it in my heart? Now watch what happens here in the book of Exodus. Verse 4, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. See, friend, we came in as renters, but we are leaving as owners because everywhere the sole of our foot treads, God has given us the land. Scripture says it this way, the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our God and of our king. And to the increase of his kingdom rule, his government and his peace, there is no end. In fact, the New Testament word used for church is the Greek word ecclesia. And it literally means a place of governmental rule and reign. 
which means this, the church is on offense, not on defense. And everywhere the sole of our foot treads, there is a prophetic voice that comes from heaven. I will give you this land. Now watch here in this context, as God is declaring these things and speaking to these things, he's establishing kind of a binary relationship. He says, you came in as foreigners, but you're gonna leave as owners for I'm giving you the land. You know, you treat something different when you're a renter versus an owner. See, that's why when you rent a property, you have to put something called a security deposit down because they know that there's a different mindset that people utilize when thinking about their surroundings in a rental context. And some of us have rented the church that we're supposed to own. Some of us have dated the bride that we're supposed to marry. And for us, as we think about what God is doing in this community, what it's going to require is covenantal commitment to keep your hand on the plow. And for us, we look at this through the context of not God, I'm just going to rent this world until you return to rescue me out of my bunker because the world is just going to hell in a handbasket. No, we think about this place as owners. Why? Because Christ is not returning for a defeated victimized church, but for a bride without spot or wrinkle, which means that our destiny is victory, which means every day that we walk in this journey is another opportunity to have victory on this side of heaven. And so for you and I, as we think about that in the context of this community, it's not God just, we're going to just try to occupy some space until you come down and then we'll be so glad to get out of this place anyways. No, we operate as owners with an ownership mentality. When you own a region and you own a city, you pray differently. It's the difference between being a hireling and a shepherd. When you're a parent, you pray differently for your kids. When you're a business owner, you pray a little differently when the books don't look good at the end of the month. When you're an owner and you got skin in the game, it impacts the attitude of your spirit and it adjusts the way that you do warfare for the season that God has placed you in. And for us, we look at this church and this inheritance and this spiritual legacy that we're a part of and we go, God, I'm not gonna rent it, I'm gonna own it. And when I own it, I'm gonna serve with my time, my talent and my treasure because I'm not here to observe, I'm here to participate because this thing is just as much mine as anybody else's. So we operate as owners here in this city. Now watch in verse five, scripture says this, moreover, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving and I have remembered my covenant. The word remember isn't meant to suggest that somehow God had forgotten, but instead that he has taken what has always been true and emphasizing it in the present. Friend, we are coming into agreement with what has always been true about our lives, about this region and about the body of Christ. God has not forgotten his people. In fact, scripture says he is close to the broken and the contrite. And I think sometimes through bad teaching, we've developed this theology that every time we mess up, God hides from us. Friend, when we mess up, we hide from God and he comes to search us out. If God couldn't look on sin, how could he look on us? He looks at us in the midst of all of our brokenness and deficiency and says, this is the one I love who I would choose every day of the week twice on Sunday and you and I get this awesome privilege of being a part of the bride of Christ and in doing so every time God looks at his church he says I will remember those people according to mercy 
God remembers not because he forgets, but because he is calling what has always been true in all of history to be true in a specific moment. Do you know that scripture says the glory of God hovers over the earth? It covers. It covers the earth. Which means before there was ever a city planted here, before there was ever the first settler's house built on this property, before the native people ever established these lands, the spirit of God was hovering over the darkness. Which tells me glory and revival is in the soil. You might say, well, some hard ground. I agree. And that's why every Sunday we prophesy and declare and bind darkness and release light. Because God, by his spirit, is turning the soil of the Northwest. I know we get criticized. You worship the way you do and it's emotional. And It's so interesting to me how Christians criticize the emotion of the church but they have no problem with the enemy wreaking emotional havoc in their lives Monday through Saturday. Yeah. Depressed, anxious, dark, suicidal, heavy, worried, warfare going on in their mind. But all of a sudden it comes to church, people say, I just wish they were more dignified and that's kind of goofy and that's, you know, I feel like they're a little too turned up. See, you don't know my story, so you don't understand my praise. See, you don't know what the person next to you been through. They should have been dead, shot, drugged, abused, raped, left alone, overdosed, and they're here by God's grace. You don't understand their story, so don't criticize their praise. And Scripture says if you've been forgiven much, you love much. Some of us in this room have just forgotten how much we've been forgiven of. Oh, you don't understand what I've been forgiven of. My praise might look a little reckless to you, but it's barely scratching the surface because I know what I deserve and I know what I've received. There are two types of people in this world. People who deserve judgment and get judgment and people who deserve judgment and get mercy. And we're the people who deserved judgment. And yet God in the fullness of time sent Jesus and we got mercy. He remembered his covenant. He remembered what he had always promised to do. He heard the cries of his people because he's close to the broken and the contrite. Let me give you two more things. I'm going to end. Verse 6, watch. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Freedom is about breaking bondage. But watch, redemption is about getting paid back. And God is in the business of doing both. So that means when you commit yourself to a developmental journey of following Jesus, rooted and grounded in church community, God doesn't just give you freedom from the affliction of your past agreements, but he pays you back for every year the canker worm has stolen and destroyed your health, your provision, your family, and your history. 
I'm not just in this thing to get free. I'm in this thing to get back everything the enemy stole from me. And I'll tell you what, like Zacchaeus who says to Jesus, I'll repay fourfold anyone I cheated. I'll tell you what, the enemy is a defeated slave. He's a defeated enemy. He's a defeated principality and power. He's a defeated demon. And everything that that worm has destroyed, God will repay in your life. God isn't just in the business of freedom. I love freedom. But I'll tell you what, redemption seals the deal. And I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Friend, the 10 signs and wonders that Moses performs against the nation of Egypt were more about God convincing Israel than it was about God convincing Pharaoh. And God's signs and wonders in your life are less about convincing your critics and more about convincing you. And we just need the church to believe that God can do everything scripture says he can do. And you know my job as a pastor, it's not even to reach the lost for Jesus. It's to reach Christians for Christ. Because if the church of Jesus could simply believe that this God is as good as Scripture says He is and can do everything Scripture says He can do, everything in your life begins to change. God tells Moses, I'm going to perform the most wild signs and wonders in Egypt that you have ever seen. But Pharaoh's heart is already hard. These signs are not to convince Pharaoh. They're to convince you. God is less concerned with your critics than you are. And when we ask God to intervene, it's not so that he can prove us right. It's so that he can prove his character true to those of us who struggle to believe him at his word. And Fred, for you and me, when we look at the story of the Hebrew children coming out of bondage into the wilderness, headed towards the promised land at every juncture in the journey, Yahweh is convincing Israel, I am your God, you will be my people, and I will perform everything I promised to perform. Yahweh wants Israel to know that he is at war with their other gods, and none of them are worth trusting. And friend, Yahweh is at war with all of your lesser gods as well. He is at war with consumerism and greed. He is at war with sickness and infirmity. He is at war with sin and and depravity and lethargy and lukewarm religiosity and every time he wins the angels of heaven beckon is there anything our God cannot do friend that's the God that we worship and on this Sunday out of John chapter 12 we celebrate this reality Jesus, on the back of a donkey, rides into Jerusalem, not to save the people from the Romans, but instead to save them from their sin. And in a moment of exaltation, the people take off their coats and lay down palm branches, and they declare, Hosanna, for this king is 
here to save and he is here to deliver. And friend, I've got good news for you. Every Sunday in this church is Palm Sunday. Every Sunday we are gathering to declare to this region, Hosanna, our God is here to save. Our God is here to deliver. Our God is here to do violence against every other lesser God of our culture. And he will win every day of the week. And if you place your trust and your hope in this Jesus, your life, your family, and your future will never be the same. Come on, Fred, would you stand as we close?